Today's reading is from John seven thirty-seven to 52. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. All right, well, good morning. I want to offer a special welcome to first service. Uh, It's good to have you here today. Kidding, that was a joke. That landed flat, right? Um, Man, I thought it was going to go better than that. Either way, um, but it is good to see, you know, you know, uh, daylight savings. We've recovered from that already at second service. We're moving on, and very well, I should move on from whatever lame joke I told as well. My name is Anthony Gamage. I'm the lead pastor here at New Life, where we exist to know Jesus and to make him known. Uh, today, we are going to be in John chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and uh, open in your Bibles to John 7. If you don't have a device uh, or uh, a Bible with you, it's going to be printed on the inside of your bulletin. So we'd love to invite you to uh, turn in there as we jump in. And as we do, uh, let me start just by saying this, is that uh, something is wrong in the church. Something is wrong in the church. Uh, some context to why I say this, and maybe the beginning of this will make some sense as to why this might be rolling around in my head this morning. We, uh, me and four other members of our staff team, got to spend uh, the last three days, or Wednesday to Friday, uh, at our presbytery retreat, uh, and Diane Langberg was our speaker. And, and so it was Diane and 26 men, and uh, she got to walk us through and teach us about power and, and the abuses of power and, and what have you. And if you don't know who she is, she is a Christian psychologist, and she's really one of the foremost uh, authorities, at least in the Christian world, uh, on abuse, particularly in the church and in ministries. And so you can imagine it was a sobering time. However, uh, for the last nine years of going to this retreat, Uh, This retreat is one of the highlights for me in part because uh, it's right here along the Delaware River, so at the Tuscarora Inn and Conference Center, I guess uh, if any of you know where this is, and I make it a practice to just go out to this one spot every year. I take a picture with my journaling app, which tells me what the temperature is and the location. It's kind of nerdy, but I do it every year now. Just some years it's frozen, some years it's, uh, you know, the water's up. This year it was still and uh, after one breakfast, before the last session, where I'm kind of gearing up for, oh, this is going to be a hard fourth session, knowing some of the content, this was just such a beautiful moment to me. 
I go out, and it's not like my home in Ardsley where it's just kind of noisy all the time. It was quiet. The water was still. Uh, you know, you could hear the birds. And I looked across the bank, and, and there's two bald eagles just sitting there eating a fish, right? Go birds. Sorry, I had to do that. Um, so I'm, <laughs> see what you did to me, Philadelphia? I would have, the whole weekend, I see these eagles, and I just keep thinking, go birds, and that's ridiculous. So, um, but it, it, it was amazing. And my mind began to think about all of the life that comes from this river. Here are these eagles eating fish that live in uh, the water. And, and you've got people who live along it. What a beautiful place to live, right? And then, you know, some people are like, hey, yeah, in the summers I go tubing down the Delaware. And, and so there's just a lot of life and there's a lot of, of joy that I can envision happening here around this river. Well, then I had to go into the session. <laughs> And as I'm sitting there in the session, I'm hearing these unfortunate stories of, of shepherds who harm the sheep. In our own denomination, even in this week, there is this crescendo moment in uh, a case of, an abu- of certain forms of abuse that uh, is really just kind of rattling the denomination, going, okay, like what's going on? How do we navigate this? In the last couple of years, the largest Christian denomination in uh, America has been scandalized by different forms of abuse, seeing the shepherds harm the sheep, and unfortunately, one of the most popular Christian podcasts for the last two years talks about the rise and fall of, of one of the most influential churches in America. And, and, and so, you know, something's got to be wrong, right? What, what are we missing? We'll pull the camera in a little bit closer to home, and then you have what happens even in our own church. You know, me and, and my pastoral experience, even in these walls, with talking to husbands who use their stature or their voices, or their income, or their emotions, or the chaos that they can bring to control their wives and their family. That's evil. On the other side, the conversations with wives who use their bodies, their emotions, withholding of love to manipulate their family. Also evil. Outside of the family, this last year had a terrible opportunity to, to um, hear the report of a friend whose wife was going through conflict with another woman in the church. And as they did, one of the women learned the power behind the word victim. There's a lot of power in that word now. And I think unjustly they weaponized that word and turned it against this person and flipped that whole family's world upside down. But the other side of that the certain ideologies who, who pounce on that term's misuse and use it as an excuse to be okay with walking by the proverbial person who has been beaten and robbed and left for dead on the side of the road. My question this weekend as I left a good but rather challenging time is, Lord, are these the living waters that you were thinking were going to flow from the hearts of your people to be blessings to the nations and to each other? Of course, the answer is no. So what is his solution? Well, this morning we're jumping into a story where uh, there are really shepherds of God's people, these religious leaders among God's people who essentially they were being everything what, uh, but what God promised through Abraham to be a blessing to the nations. In a way, they were a curse. And, and in a way, they were using this thing called the law to be this oppressive peace that, that they used as power to hold over their people and to, quite honestly, lead them away from Jesus Christ. 
And so this morning, uh, we're remembered in this context, going back to 7 verse 2. So this is two sermons ago, where Jesus has, has come upon this joyous occasion of the Feast of Booths, and, and he's getting ready to deliver these few sentences that he is going to deliver in that context. But before we jump into the outline, let me pray for us as we get going. Lord, the reality is, is every single one of us are vulnerable, and every single one of us wield some form of power to get what we want. (laughs) And Lord, every single one of us, our hearts are rebellious against you, and we are in desperate need for the transforming work of your Holy Spirit. And so would you give us that today in a unique way as we come, as we listen, as we absorb your word. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would change our hearts as a result of the hearing of it, and I pray that you would guard my words from being offensive in any way, shape, or form, apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you help? We need you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the first point we're going to look at is a reason for rejoicing. And this is verses 37 and 38. And as you jump in, for those of us who are following along, we're paying attention to the text, this may feel like a weird start to this scene change. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. You might be going, where'd the water come from, right? I mean, we didn't talk about water last week. We haven't talked about water for a while, yet it seems that Jesus thought it fitting to just stand up and start talking about water. What's going on here? Why did he start talking about water? Well, John has tuned our ears a little bit, hasn't he? When we go back to John 4, this was a while ago, but he's talking to the woman at the well, and we've read this already this morning, But Jesus says to the woman, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. All right, so that's one of the soccer balls that John puts down and kicks, and then he's going to come back to it later. So we're catching up to that soccer ball, and we're going to unpack it here a little bit. And I would just argue that that this isn't as disjointed or as much of a non sequitur as we think. And here's why. Remember, I think it was last week I talked about at this festival, there were two rites or um, uh, religious events or practices that they did. One was a a water-pouring rite, and the other one was a lamp-lighting rite. Well, these two weeks, we're going to be talking about this week the water-pouring, next week the lamp-lighting, and and how Jesus is actually using this as a supreme illustration, right? When he says this, it would have made complete sense to those who are participating in this situation in this water pouring right let me explain to you what typically would have been happening on this day of the feast during this water pouring right essentially the high priest would go out and he would fill a container of water at the pool of Siloam and, and, and he would process back in to the temple and when uh, he got back to what's known as the water gate uh, there would have been a trumpet blast that would have come from the temple at that time the temple choir would have begun singing in the hall And then when they reached uh, the point where they were singing Psalm 118, uh, the men would shake basically these reeds. It was willow and myrtle reeds tied together with palm branches. They would shake that in their right hand, and then they would hold up a piece of citrus or fruit in their left. And that would represent the harvest. Because remember, I said this last week, this harvest was the one that God's people looked the most forward to because it was celebrating God's care of them and their bounty and the harvest. And there was tons of food and celebration. After they raised this up, they would yell together, give thanks to the Lord three times. And then they would pour this water into a silver vessel along with the wine, which was the drink offering. And then they would pour those two things out before the Lord. And here's what they would have understood this to mean. It meant two things. 
One, it was representative of the Lord's provision for them of water in the desert, right? Thinking of the water that came from the rock that, that nourished them. And it meant, from a big picture standpoint, fertility and fruitfulness, right? Crops, right? You, without water, things die. The second thing they would have understood, at least in Jewish thought at that time, is this is the Lord's pouring out of the Spirit in the last days, in the coming of the Messiah. If you want to read some of this, Nehemiah 9, that kind of packages all of this together in that chapter. But, but, but that's what's happening here. That's where their minds and their hearts are. That's what they're thinking about. And it's then that Jesus just kind of steps up, grabs a mic, it's like, and then he goes, that's me. <laughs> I am the water that brings that life. I am the promised Messiah, and I am bringing the Spirit. He probably needed very little explanation as to what he was actually articulating here. Here's a couple of other verses from the Old Testament to help you understand what's going on. Zechariah 14 on that day, and this is the day of the Lord, this is the prophet Zechariah years before this, says, Living water shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. And on that day the Lord will be one, and his name one. And so it's the promising of the day of the Lord where the Messiah will appear. Here's Proverbs 4. So this brings it to a more personal level, talking about these streams of water. Proverbs 4 says this, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. You know, when Jesus talks about um, the Scriptures say, he's really, he's really kind of pulling together all of the passages of Scripture that call, talk about uh, the water that is God's provision and the water that will flow, the living waters that will come from our hearts. And he's making a very clear point. Now, there's a couple other words just to draw your attention to. Verse 38, the word heart. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow streams of water. That is not the technical Greek term for the organ that's beating in your chest right now for your heart. It could also be uh, translated as something along the lines of guts, <laughs> bowels, right? Wow, Anthony, thanks for that little tidbit. In that time, the, the guts, the bowels, is kind of, you know, that feeling in your gut, right? That pit in your stomach. You know what I'm talking about when I say that? So that's what they're referring to. It would be similar to us saying, follow your heart. What does your heart say? We say that all the time. And so it's just saying the Lord will change our guts. <laughs> he will change the, the viscera of our being, the faculty of our desires. That is where the streams of living water will flow from. And that living water term, it could either be a river like the Delaware that flows year-round or like a wadi, I, I think is how you pronounce that word, but it's basically a riverbed that's dry in the dry season, but when the rain season comes, water just pushes through it, right? And so that's the picture that we have here. So maybe a question I would ask is, is what are your guts telling you? What are your guts telling you? Meaning, and maybe you ask a friend, a spouse, a child, um, do you sense streams of living water coming from me? And if not, why not? And that could begin maybe a, a diagnostic quest of sorts. Here's the second point we're going to look at. Is we're going to look at this picture of an empowering gift. Verse 39 and 40, John really just, or 39, John offers us a commentary as to what exactly he's talking about. I wonder how many of us, when uh, we hear Jesus saying, streams of living water, we're like, oh, that's great. What does that mean? Like, have you ever thought that? 
I have, even sitting in here. I'm like, Lord, help me wrestle through what streams of living water mean. Well, John helps us a whole lot. He said this, Jesus said, verse 39, about the Spirit, whom those who believe in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so whereas I, I think these people might have been thinking the Spirit of God being poured out on them, they, they didn't have the advantage we do on this side of the incident where John is interpreting for us the living water that John's talking about, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's saying it hasn't been given. Where it says Jesus was not yet glorified, it's pointing back to verse 33 that we looked at last week where Jesus said, and I am going to go to the Father. That's where he ascends and, and he is glorified. And so I would just say this, we talk often about how the cross is pivotal to our Christian faith and we talk about the resurrection being pivotal to our Christian faith. Christ's ascension and glorification is equally pivotal to our faith because it's him going to be with the Father that initiates him sending his Holy Spirit. We'll sometimes say, if I could just walk with Jesus like the disciples did, you know, I'd, I'd just be so much better, you know, Christian and so on and so forth. And I think that's not true. Because they can only crane their necks or follow along and see what Jesus does. But when Jesus goes to be with the Father, he sends his Holy Spirit. And that means every single one of us, after Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, if we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ, has God himself dwelling in us. The Holy Spirit, this is another soccer ball that we will get to in a more robust way in John 14 to 16. But, but, but here's a couple of passages just to unpack this a little bit further. This is Pentecost, right? Jesus has ascended to the Father. Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Just like John says here, he says, those who have believed in him were to receive the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, it says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. I read you these passages to say this. There are some arms of the Christian faith that would teach there's two separate motions, if you will, of receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and believing in Him, and then sometime later, for some mysterious way, you'll later get this gift of the Holy Spirit. And I would just say you cannot defend that from Scripture. The moment you believe in Jesus Christ is the moment the Holy Spirit comes and makes a home in you. Paul says here, if you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to Him. The Holy Spirit is a part of it. Why is that important? You know, we think about, uh, when we talk about the gospel, things like justification, being declared not guilty, and adoption, and sanctification, but how often do we, particularly in Presbyterian churches, talk about the mysterious third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit? It's not often, is it? But I would argue it's just as significant as any of those other pieces of the gospel. Here's a space shuttle, right? I like space shuttles. You've heard me tell stories about space shuttles before. Of my friend who was in the safe viewing area and the, the thrusters go off and all of a sudden he's just terrified, right? Because he's like, I am way too close to this thing because it's powerful. Now, I've never been close to one, but uh, I've heard that if you are, you recognize how much power coming out uh, of, of those boosters or rockets that are uh, shooting it up into the air. And, and when we see a picture like this, it's really easy uh, to um, focus in on the force that's coming out of the back of those rockets, right? But we rarely think about the forces uh, that require the need of those rockets, right? I mean, why 
are those needed in the first place? Why, if that space shuttle was just sitting there, it wouldn't move unless there's a force pushing it upward? There's this thing called gravity, right? That's holding it down. And as it's trying to escape the Earth's atmosphere, there's, there's different sorts of um, uh, pressures and, uh, I can't think of the word, uh, resistance that the air will bring until it leaves our atmosphere. So, so the reality is, is that space shuttle needs something outside of itself in order to get it to do the things that it was designed to do. And that's the function of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We just have different forces working against us. Sin, the flesh, the devil, the world, right? Those are all things that, that are preventative in our lives of us pleasing God, trusting God, walking with Jesus, fighting against sin. And the good news here is Jesus is saying every single one of us are going to get these little boosters in the Holy Spirit to us to be able to accomplish the Father's will. Let me give you a couple of examples. Right, again, we're going to get to this more so in John 14 to 16, but, but the Holy Spirit gives us confidence in our identity in Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1, it says we have been sealed as sons and daughters of the King, so that even when we have a hard time believing, we can rely on the Holy Spirit's work, not ours, to be identified in Christ. We don't have to run to all these secondary identities in order to find our sanity. Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel says, there is going to come a time where I, God, place my Spirit in you and cause you to obey my rules. When you can't do it, I'm going to give you what you need to be able to. John 14, it says something similar. We, we, the Holy Spirit helps us. It, it convicts us. It brings faith and repentance and gives us the ability to obey. And when we say, I just can't obey God here, you're lying to yourself. He has given us that in the Holy Spirit. Luke 12, 12, Peter's getting squirrely because Jesus is like, hey, you're going to be called to persecution to go before the council. And he's getting squirrely. And, and Jesus says, hey, don't worry when you're called before the council, what you will say, because the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say at that moment. The book of Acts is all about how the Holy Spirit is kind of like the quiet member of the Trinity in the corner with the Jesus t-shirt, which is just trying to constantly bear witness to who Jesus is. A friend last week came up to me and said, there was somebody I've been praying for for decades to be able to share the gospel with them, and I've just not had that opportunity. And all of a sudden, the Lord dropped an opportunity in my lap, and words just started coming out. That's what the Holy Spirit does. That's His work in our lives. Well, friends, let me say this. I believe that things like discipline, things like um, modern medicine and modern psychology are, are important and critical and good gifts of God that we must use. I say that uh, because we walk through situations where uh, it is good for us to lean on things like psychology to help people through addiction, right? Did you know that pornography literally rewires our brains? It rewires it. And there are studies that show that medicine and Christian counseling working together can help rewire our brains in a helpful direction. As people have walked through things like trauma, the Lord has given us good gifts and things like procedures called EMDR, to walk people through, to unpack things, to kind of get past the mouth of the cave so that the Holy Spirit, so that we can get into the depths of the heart of what's going on. You're looking at a person who has gone through over a decade of counseling to deal with anxiety. So I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying, that if we just believe in the Holy Spirit, all the hard stuff will go away. 
Things like medication have saved some of our lives in the world of depression and anxiety. It has. But I'll also say this. Discipline, cognitive behavioral therapy, EMDR, medication, therapy in general, it might help, but it will not change our guts. Jesus has sent the Holy Spirit to do that. You ever heard these words? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. What are those called? The fruit of the Spirit. It's what He generates in us. So you might be like, okay, cool, Anthony, that's kind of creepy. How do we do the Holy Spirit thing then, right? Well, there's a man named Bill Bright. He was the founder of Campus Crusade or Crew. Uh, who we used to work for. And this, this was just a really important idea for me when I was a young believer. Uh, he would call it spiritual breathing. And he would just say this, when we find ourselves in rebellion, in that helpless place where we're, where we're acting contrary to God's word, if we, are off, if we are a follower of Christ, he said, exhale, which means simply confess to him where we are sinning against him, rebelling against him. And then he says, then you have to breathe in, right? If you breathe out, you have to breathe in. And how he would describe breathing in is basically submitting our lives to the rule of the Holy Spirit. Acknowledge and trust that he is in us and he is at work. And you know, we always ask the question, how often do you have to breathe? 12 to 15 times a minute, right? (laughs) Often. And so spiritual breathing is just this constant repentance or, or confession and reliance upon him constantly. And that is how we begin to address this You know, Lord, develop in us these springs of living water that you say will flow from our lives. Here's the last one. I'm going to be very brief. There's a mixed reception. I know you're all shocked about that, that yet again, there's a group of people and there's a mixed reception to Jesus. 40 to 42, there's the almost theirs, right? He's a prophet. They're close, but they're not there. 41, the people who actually get it, this is the Christ. This is the Messiah. 41 to 42, the same characters of, well, we just need to arrest him and destroy him. And uh, they're showing their ignorance a little bit uh, when they say, the Christ doesn't come from Galilee, he comes from Bethlehem. We know our Bibles, high five, Micah 5, 2, all right. And Jesus is like, I was born in Bethlehem, right here, right? They didn't have the song yet. Maybe that's why a little town of Bethlehem, maybe that's why they didn't get it. 47 to 48, the Levites are these, these temple guards They're like, why didn't you arrest them? And they said, no one spoke like this man. And then they just kind of turn on them. Have you been deceived? We don't follow him, so you should follow what we do. Friends, these were the Levites who were these people, right, who were the guards. These weren't like uneducated, not theologically trained people. They're taking a swipe at them. 50 to 51, you know, Nicodemus is back. He shows up. I don't know if he's been... Uh, converted at this point or not, but he's ever the politician buying Jesus a little bit more time. But <laughs> um, all of a sudden, you know, you've got the Pharisees doing what they always do. They're like, are you from Galilee too? There's a great argument. Search and see that no prophet arises in Galilee. Well, by the way, um, Jonah and Nahum, both prophets, arose from Galilee. So they're just flailing at this point. They hate Jesus. They want to kill him. And they're going to basically get rid of anybody who's in their way. But here's the last line I want us to focus on. Verse 49, they're saying, but this crowd does not know the law and they're accursed. Right? There they are again. They're leaning on this thing, the law, that, that we're not just talking about 
the biblical law now. We're talking about the 39 extra laws that they add to just the day of rest. And they are using this, their, their power of knowledge to control these crowds. And they're like, you're just accursed. And we already know Jesus addressed them in John chapter 5, and he said, hey, Pharisees, you search the scriptures because in them you think you can find eternal life. But guess what? They point to me, and if you miss me, you miss eternal life. These Pharisees have all wrong what they think will actually be a curse to them. Paul unpacks it a little bit more in Galatians 3. He says, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Friends, the law is an x-ray. It is not something that will heal us. It is something that will time and time again reveal the brokenness that we don't even see. And it can only work to stand against us as a witness as to how rebellious we truly are. It will not save us. And even if you do not believe in God's law, you are submitting to some sort of law, and it's crushing you. Whether it's the law that you've built for yourself, your own standards that you constantly fall short of, whether or not it's, it's the law of your tribe, right, that you are neurotically trying to keep up with to save yourself and to stay in good standing, what Jesus is saying, or what Paul is saying here about Jesus is the only release from the curse of the law is to give your life to the one who actually bore the true curse on our behalf on the cross so that we may have life. Verse 38 is good news. Whoever believes in me, believes in me, out of his heart will flow streams of living water. Friends, something is wrong in the church, but the good news is that that Jesus, through the gospel, has sent his spirit to address it. Let me pray for us and then we'll move to communion. Lord, we all, if left to our own devices, have streams of putrid water that flows out of us. We do not love you. And apart from your spirit, we do not love each other. We're in it for our own law-keeping. Lord, you've given us your Spirit to overcome the forces of evil, of sin, of the world, of the flesh, and of Satan. And you tell us as we believe in you, those streams of living water can flow out of us. Would you continue to show us that as we move to communion? We pray in your name. Amen.